Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, February 10th, we are studying John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. When the scribes and Pharisees bring before Jesus a woman caught in adultery, the Lord avoids their trap and he teaches the truth. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wergau. Pastor Wergau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we get started today, Pastor Wergau, remind us where we are in John's gospel. What have we been reading up to this point? Right, exactly. So this uh, this uh, section on the woman caught in adultery is coming right at the tail end of the um, Jesus teaching at the Feast of Booths. Um, and we, we, we see that end, you know, that last day of the feast, he stands up and anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, kind of that climactic moment. Uh, and then there's this uh, kind of interlude where there's this division among the, the people. Uh, uh, and especially among the, the, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees on, on who this is, who this Christ is, uh, ending with those uh, no prophet arises from Galilee mm-hmm. statement, uh, kind of, again, that kind of thrust of rejection uh, of the Christ, which is going to then play into uh, what we have uh, coming into uh, the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of uh, chapter 8. So as we look at this text, in most English editions of the scriptures, the elephant in the room is that note that at the top of the ESV, at the beginning of this text, it reads this, the earliest manuscripts do not include 7 verse 53 through 8 verse 11. So in terms of of context, that's the reason I ask kind of where have we been up to this point? But the question of this text and the earliest manuscripts not including it all the time, what does that mean, Pastor Wargal? What do we make of that? How should we understand what we're going to read today? Well, it's good to be kind of honest about what we're approaching, which is why the editors and a lot of uh, uh, Bibles put in this little this little note. So, of course, we know that uh, we have, for the whole of, of the uh, Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, including the Gospel of John, manuscripts that have survived that date back fairly, fairly far. Uh, and that's wonderful for us to have that kind of textual evidence to what, what the scriptures are. However, we do see later additions being put into uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the canon, the, the, the manuscripts that we have. Uh, another famous one for this is the end of Mark's gospel. Mm. Uh, now, what we don't want to do with this is somehow throw up our hands and say, well, we can't trust this at all. Right. <laughs> you know, this isn't this isn't the word of the Lord, or or this isn't. Um, we can see from the textual evidence that the earliest manuscripts don't have 
this little section uh, uh, concerning the woman caught in adultery, but we, we, we know that they don't have it. We don't know why they didn't include it or why it was later added. Uh, Weinrich's very generous in his commentary about talking and, and very detailed, I should say, about going through uh, the kind of complicated history of this. And, um, and and it's good to read. I got to tell you, textual criticism sometimes in history is sometimes my weakest point with, when it comes to this. But, but what we do see here is that the earliest evidence of this text puts it at about the fifth century. Uh, it does differ dramatically in language and style from the rest of John. If you go back to the original language, and we'll see a, at least one example of that, I think, when we kind of get into the text itself. So we can see what the facts are, that there's some differences here, that it doesn't show up. Anytime we get into why, we're going to be delving into the theoretical or speculating on these things, which isn't bad in itself, I don't think. Uh, for example, and, and this is what previous uh, teachers of the church has done. So Augustine claimed that that this little section had been removed from the biblical text because it raised kind of this, what what Weiner calls the specter of leniency toward marital infidelity. So we don't want to, we, do, we want to take it out of there. We don't want to have it in the, in the text because, well, then we don't want to have leniency on adultery. But Weinrich makes a great point to say uh, the broader manuscript evidence indicates that it was probably not known or did not have a firm textual location until the fifth fifth century. That's when it was kind of established into the Gospel of John. And it's kind of put into this point, and it does fit well into this location, I think, um, because you do have this kind of transition from the Feast of, of Booths to then Jesus teaching uh, um, in the temple again in the rest of John 8. And the woman caught in adultery puts us right in that location of the temple and really does draw, as we'll see, this connection between Jesus, not as a new Moses, but as the fulfillment of the law and the one who comes then to give uh, what Ryan Weinert calls this uh, law of mercy and law of grace in, in not condemning the woman, but taking that condemnation really upon himself. So with that textual tradition that this particular text is not in every early manuscript and seems to be later in terms of the manuscript tradition, and again, the manuscripts, there are tons of manuscripts of the New Testament, and they give very excellent testimony to the scriptures. I mean, we should be very clear about that. As you said, when you see that note in your Bible, you shouldn't think, oh, the scriptures are not to be trusted. By no means. Uh, there are so many reasons that we should trust the text of the scriptures that we have. This is the word of God that we are reading when we open up our Bible. But right. when we come to a text like this, where there is, as we honestly must say, there's textual variation here onto where this gets placed or if it's there at all. Uh, one of the notes that I think is is interesting to maybe for us to keep in mind is that some some texts some manuscripts have this section actually in the gospel of Luke in Luke 21 yeah. verse 38 it it shows up there which that would put it in the context of holy week all right. all of that is to say with again that honestly on the table how should we think of this text then as as christians how should we approach it right right exactly i, I believe we can we can approach it as as the word of the lord uh we can view it as scripture and as an agreement, I think this is more important, agreement with the rest of the teachings of scripture. So there's nothing in here that's contradicting it, uh, contradicting what the rest of what Jesus did or anything of that nature. It actually melts right into what the rest of the gospels teach, uh, and including the rest of the gospel of John or Luke or um, uh, Matthew or Mark. Um, it kind of gives a harmony to everything. 
However, I would say if, if somebody was going to raise a point just just from John 8, uh, you know, the first 11 verses of John 8, uh, and, and can nowhere else support it from anywhere else in Scripture, mm. which I don't think any, I don't know if anybody would, would do that. But those are kind of cases where you're like, well, then we have to step back and kind of look at what is the whole testimony of the Scriptures and what are kind of the the, 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 I guess, lack of a better word, firmer uh, teachings that we have uh, concerning concerning whatever whatever teaching. Does that make sense? It it does, and that's I was going to bring that up too. We've we've mentioned this on Sharper Iron before that when we think about how Scripture interprets Scripture, we should always start with those clear passages. So, for example, when it comes to what is holy baptism, start with a passage in Matthew twenty eight where Jesus institutes holy baptism. And work your way out from there to the passages that maybe aren't as directly about holy baptism or, you know, are, are more periphery. Start right. with the ones that are about it. Start with the clear text and then let that interpret the unclear texts. Yeah. Similarly, when you've got a text that there's question as to whether or not it is in the text or where exactly it goes in the text— don't start from there, but start from the clearer passages and let those inform the way we understand these verses, rather than using these verses all by themselves to come up with something that's taught nowhere else in Scripture. That's that's generally not going to be a good thing anyways, but especially right, not exactly. here. Yep, exactly. No, couldn't have put it better myself. Okay, so with, with that in mind then, we are going to read this text today. We're going to study it as the Word of God here in the context of John's gospel. Now, you, you mentioned that you think it fits nicely here. I, I think it'd be interesting to, to consider this, even in that, that context of where Luke has it in Holy Week, because there are some things about this text that strike me as similar to other things that happened to Jesus during Holy Week as the synoptic right. gospels record it. But I, I am curious, you say it fits well here. How, how do you see it fitting into this context of John 7 and 8? Yeah, so I think it fits well here uh, on two fronts. The first is you'll see in the rest of eight this continual tension and uh, confrontation that's being built up with the um, with the Pharisees uh, and uh, the Jew or the Jews who had believed in Jesus. So, um, kind of you see an intense inter uh, exchange, uh, I should say, as we kind of go forward. This is where you get into the. Uh, you know, before Abraham was, I am, and then they're picking up stones to throw him. And all of that takes place in the temple, which is where our text here with the woman caught in adultery fits. I do also agree, though, because this came up when I was studying studying this text as well. I was seeing all of these connections between what Jesus is doing here and what's going to take place in Luke and with, with Luke and Holy Week, especially uh, the night when he's betrayed uh, and then him going to the Sanhedrin and, and, and all those kind of events of being condemned. Uh, it does fit there well. It fit, fits very well there as well. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I, I, I like how this kind of sets the stage at the beginning of eight so that you can see where things are going with Jesus uh, interchange or uh, 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 talking with and uh, encountering the, the, the other Jews. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at this text. Again, we are reading John 7, beginning at verse 53, and then into chapter 8, all the way to verse 11. Here is the text. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, 
teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's the text we're studying today. That's John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. So, Pastor Wargo, talk to us about that opening context. Again, as it's situated in John's gospel, the Feast of Booths has just ended. Everybody's going home. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and then he's going to come back to the temple. Give us this opening context here. Right. So, again, since we, we can't from as we look at this as kind of being inserted into to, to John uh, later on, it's doubtful that we can see that each going to their own houses as a transitional formula for, you know, that connected to the preceding, you know, mm-hmm. where the Sanhedrin are now going to their own houses after being divided. It kind of sounds nice. And that's how I think it's most commonly understood because people kind of just read it through in that way. Regardless, whatever happened, people go to their own houses. What Jesus does, though, is significant because he goes up to the mountain to pray, mm-hmm. which is very a very common thing that that Jesus will do. Uh, we know that happens throughout the Gospels where Jesus is going away to pray. Uh, and the Mount of Olives as being that place of prayer. And this is where, again, the Luke uh, insertion in Luke makes a lot of sense because this is where in Luke twenty two thirty nine that's when I'm you know um, he goes up as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed with mm-hmm. him um, you know before all the events start to transpire concerning his arrest, betrayal and arrest um, so the Mount of Olives definitely has that location and has that kind of understanding it's opposite the temple which works really well in the text that we have here that this is where Jesus goes at night praise the next day early the next day is when he moves from the mount of olives then to the temple kind of sets the scene for what's going on uh which is again another customary thing that you know i might be getting sold that this actually belongs in luke the more and more i look at this because <laughs> it's uh it's something to say i mean i'm not going to argue with those who came before us and put it in john but but that's another key thing in luke 21 uh early in the morning he goes to the temple uh and the people come to him and he teaches them and, and and this kind of idea that this is what Jesus is doing here. He goes to the temple. This is the place where he teaches. And um, he, he goes there. And, and what does that mean? He sat down, right? Which is really important. That's the rabbi position to sit down and to teach. Um, and he's going to be teaching perhaps concerning the law. Uh, that's what rabbis would do. You know, they sit down teaching concerning the law. Uh, in the synagogues, Jesus does it here in the temple, um, so we see him depicted as a rabbi, a teacher of the law, reputation of Jesus that he had. And that's where we're kind of left when the stage is set before, in verse 3, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees kind of come in. So, you know, location seems almost very, I mean, of course, John does have a lot with the temple, but he does, yeah. this, this idea of Jesus teaching, people coming and gathering and listening to him, 
I think uh, is, is really nice for setting the stage about what's going to happen, because then we see that interrupted with, with the scribes and the Pharisees coming in. So the other, and this I know jumps ahead of where we are in terms of the verses, but the other thing within this text that does strike me as a, a Holy Week type context is the fact that they've, they're going to bring this situation before Jesus, not with any honest intention, but with the intention of trapping him. And that's one of the things that happens over and over again to Jesus during Holy right. Week. It's like these people are all lining up to try to land a punch. None of them are able, of course, but that that's where this does, I think, have that sort of Holy Week flavor to it. Now, having, right. I mean, with with those things in mind, just to kind of think a little bit about how it, it fits in John, as you said, the temple does figure very prominently in John. And we already know from chapter two of John that Jesus is the temple now. You know, he is the one who will, they're going to destroy this temple. He's going to raise it again in three days. That's his body. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, you see how Jesus is the temple now. He is the place where God dwells among his people, the word made flesh. He's been teaching a lot in John's gospel. He's been labeled as rabbi by many, in a, and in a faithful way, not just in a disbelieving way. So I think those things fit. And even then, the question about, you know, what does Moses have to say, that's been in the background of John, and even in the foreground of John, very often, particularly from chapter 5 onward. So again, this is where I, I suppose just the fact that there is this sort of ambiguous nature of where this text has been placed— you, know, you can I, I think you can see both things. So I right. yeah, I, I mean I'm with you that man, as I read this, I, I certainly could see it happening during Holy Week, but just to try to make that case for John too, I think is helpful. Right. Now that's really great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there obviously was very good reasoning why it was placed where it was placed, probably sure. by smarter people than me. And me. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think and I think it's so what's kind of neat about this though, and what's neat about having the gospels as a whole and the scriptures as a whole, you know what I'm saying? Uh, we don't have to fight them against each other. Right. They're all eyewitness accounts of, of the life of Christ. So they definitely all kind of connect in, in portraying what's going on with Jesus, who he is, how he's relating to his followers, to the scribes and the Pharisees, how he's relating to the old Testament and what he teaches and what transpires. And of course, all of this under the canopy of, of, of the Holy spirit, giving us these words, <laughs> which, yeah. which, then are teaching us concerning the big picture about Christ. So Right, right. So and, and I think just one other thing about, you know, kind of this conversation, that regardless of, of whether or not this is supposed to be right right here in John or maybe in Luke, it, it I think it's pretty much unquestioned in the church history. I shouldn't say pretty much unquestioned, but it seems there's a, a large consensus that in either case, this is an accurate description of something that Jesus did and said in either case. Yes. Yes, exactly. I think that's that's fair to say, uh, and um, and good for us to hear. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, all right. So we've got the scene set. Jesus has gone to the Mount of Olives overnight, but he's come back to the temple. Everybody comes to him there in the temple. He's sitting down, the position of a rabbi. He's teaching them, and here come the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, what are they up to? Take us into their actions. Right. So they come. Uh, and, and this is actually, the location here again is important because this is the location also of the Sanhedrin court, which would try cases like that of adultery. And so they bring a, uh, um, a woman, oh, and this is an interesting point that this is one of the things where I mentioned earlier that the, uh, some of the language, um, 
and, and kind of construction of this section doesn't fit with the rest of John, as far mm -hmm. as, you know, John, John never uses this term anywhere else in the gospel, scribes and Pharisees. Actually, I think that's a Lucan formula that he uses quite a bit, I believe. I, I'm not 100% sure, though. But, <laughs> but it is, it's used elsewhere in the gospels, but John doesn't use scribes and Pharisees together like this. But this is the group that brings it forward. Uh, and they bring forward a woman uh, who has been uh, caught in an adultery. And um, so as the stage is set, we kind of see the drama unfold here. The scribes and the Pharisees bringing um, the, uh, the woman who was caught in adultery. I want to comment real quick on the scribes and Pharisees just because we kind of use those terms like scribes and Pharisees. Who are we talking about here? Yeah. Uh, and scribes refers really to a class. Uh, a group uh, and the Pharisees to a to a party, right? We know Pharisees, Sadducees, right? You know, we, we kind of understand them as as a party. So, so these two two groupings aren't identical. Not all the scribes would belong to the party of the Pharisees, and not all Pharisees were scribes. But the combination undoubtedly it relates to a common mentality. The, these are the Pharisaical uh, Pharisaic zealots for the Jewish tradition, um, which is why then of course they're opposed to Jesus. Uh, why they, why this, this is the group that's trying to trap him. Uh, and, and one reason, one way they're about it now is by bringing forward this woman, uh, and, and really the, the idea of woman here, when this word gune is used, it really does, uh, which is the Greek word for woman, uh, suggests that she was a married woman hmm. and that one that's been caught in, in adultery. Uh, and what's important here is we don't get the sense that she's already been tried by the Sanhedrin. This is kind of, she's been caught and it gives the understanding that there is not a question about her guilt, right? So she's caught in the act of adultery. And so there's no question about her guilt. Therefore, this is the prime opportunity for these scribes and Pharisees to bring this case to Jesus uh, to see what he's going to do about it. Because he can go one of two ways. He can either say, yes, she's guilty, let's stone her. Or he can say, um, we shouldn't condemn her. She shouldn't be condemned for the, for the, for the crime. So either he's going to go with, with, the, uh, with the, the Mosaic law, as the scribes and the Pharisees would, would have it interpreted. Or he's going to really deny what he had been teaching or being viewed as previously. So... It's really amazing then how Jesus handles this uh, and how he goes about uh, using this moment to teach actually not only concerning this woman and the law of Moses, but concerning himself. Hmm. I, I read something, too, that part of the trap could be not only, you know, how will Jesus respond to the law of Moses, but that part of it could also be the fact that if he does talk about, you know, going the path of stoning her or putting her to death, that he could run afoul of of the Romans as well in oh, yes, taking yes. taking law into his own hands that doesn't perhaps belong to him. The matter of whether or not the Jews could execute someone publicly like that is a right. at least you know is brought up elsewhere in John's Gospel. So so maybe you know there's part of that as the trap too. Again, something you see during Holy Week also. Where maybe could we pit Jesus against the Romans? So again, yeah. the, the trap has been set. This is that. But let's let's maybe talk a little bit more about the, what the Pharisees bring up. They say in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Are mm -hmm. are they right in in the way they're interpreting Moses? There, 
Yeah, so they're taking uh, Leviticus 20.10, which says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And also Deuteronomy 22.22, which says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so shall you purge evil, purge the evil from Israel. Now, neither of these... Uh, those verses mention stoning, but if you go a little bit farther in Deuteronomy 22, 24, it says, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, which is not where they brought them, uh, brought her, but, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so shall you purge the evil from your midst. And then later on in Ezekiel, it does bring up this idea of with the, the relationship of uh, adultery and stoning in Ezekiel 16, 38. It says, and I will judge you as a woman who commit, who com as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with the swords. So um, it was, I, I think, kind of especially at Jesus time, this was the common way. Um, to deal with um, uh, the sin of adultery. Now, I find it very interesting. The woman is brought before our Lord um, with this case and goes back, you know, going back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But what's missing here is there's not the other party. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't find anything in my commentaries that talked about this, but I thought that was kind of fascinating to know you know, obviously, when it comes to adultery, there are two people involved. Right. And how do how do we interpret this that they didn't bring the other guilty party? Because Mosaic Law would say, yeah, that should be brought forward as well. Hmm. Uh, and I think it might relate to this idea that Jesus' reputation for um, I, not leniency, but for, for embracing sinners, including mm. sinful women, is so common in the Gospels that that I, I don't know if this is really just putting the ball in his court for what are you going to do with this? Uh, or, or I don't know why the, the, the other guilty party is not involved in this. Sure. And I, I don't know that you can, that any of us can say with certainty why they didn't bring the, the other party. But bringing out the few things that you did say already, this does seem to be one of the, those cases that it was pretty obvious she had been caught in this act. Well, if she had been caught in the act, then the other person would have been caught in the act as well. And so, I mean, it's not they shouldn't be able to to make the case. Well, we don't know because that that's not what's being said. It, it would appear again from the way that it's said. Uh, perhaps it it simply just reveals their hypocrisy. It's just another indicator within the text that they're not there with any noble intention. They they're not really interested right. in the case. They're just there yeah, to, exactly. to trap Jesus. They're not actually interested in the law of Moses. They're not actually interested in in the truth of God's word. They're interested in actually. Uh, justifying themselves yeah. uh, in accordance with the law and and casting or, or you know bringing the blame actually ultimately on Jesus with this. Let's uh, let's so talk more. Of, yeah, go let, ahead. well Sorry. let's let's talk more about that on the other side of the break. This this fact that they're not really interested in the law of Moses. They're more about justifying themselves and trapping Jesus. So let's let's pick that up on the other side. You're so. listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking John seven and eight with Pastor Sam Wergau. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, February 10th. We're studying John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11 with Pastor Sam Wurgau. He serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wurgau, prior to the break, we were talking about these scribes and Pharisees who bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and you noted that the man is not there, and we were talking about how that likely is a revelation of their hypocrisy. They're not actually interested in the law of Moses. They're interested in justifying themselves and entrapping Jesus. That's where we dropped off, pick that conversation up again. Right. And I think what they're really trying to do is they're trying to pit Jesus against Moses, which isn't going to work very well. But I mean, it is, it is something that they're trying to do. I mean, that really comes clear in the text here when they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses and now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say, mm. right? This kind of contrast between the us and the you. Um, it, the scribes and the Pharisees posture, really, they're setting themselves against Jesus. And, and really this juxtaposition of, he said, Moses said this to us, uh, has this rhetorical place uh, effect of placing Moses and the scribes and Pharisees on the same side and, of course, against, against Jesus. But they're missing the whole point of, of the law of Moses and and the law of Moses is not to um, attack Christ. Uh, the right. law of Moses is is actually to um, convict their sinful hearts <laughs> concerning yeah. you know. And and so so that's fascinating because I think it's going to come out again too when Jesus says, "Let the one without sin cast the first stone." Uh, it really does come down to a Christology. It comes down to who do they or who do we think that Jesus is? And then you have the understanding of how he then relates to the law. So, yeah. Right. And the, and the way, as you said, that they pit Moses against Jesus is, is one way that I do think this fits into the context of John's gospel, because this has yeah. been at question at least since chapter five, is how do you understand Moses? And according to Jesus, if you read Moses, then you should believe in him. If you read Moses and you don't believe in him, then you haven't actually believed Moses. So I, I think that being at the heart of this, it does fit well here in John's gospel. So here's the trap to Jesus then. He either, you know, quote, upholds Moses according to the scribes and Pharisees, but then he isn't seen as the friend of sinners anymore, as he's been making himself out to be, or he shows himself to be friends of sinners, but then they they think they can accuse him then of breaking down Moses and the law. That's the trap that's laid before him. And again, thinking back to Holy Week context, we see this happen over and over again during Holy Week, where Jesus is ha- he has a trap laid before him, and he springs the trap. He does that here, 
But this is where this text is a bit strange. In verse six, they said this to test him. And then the first thing Jesus does, he doesn't say anything, but he bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. And I, I think... I think this is the only time in the Gospels where we hear of Jesus writing anything. I'm not positive about that, but this is a strange no, it event, is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is strange. Yeah, it is the only occurrence in the Gospels where we have Jesus writing something down. And it's just, I mean, if you're just kind of reading it, it seems completely out of place. I mean, you know, he's not right. hes not in a place where you probably would write anything down to begin with, uh, but he but he's actually going to stoop down and write, I, I guess we assume rightly in the ground, uh, this idea. So he's going to write and he's going to speak. Now, again, this is another point where we kind of come up to, well, we know the facts that Jesus stooped down, that he wrote. Anything else beyond that, we're going to just kind of speculate on, I guess, and, and, and kind of, it'll be theory. And that's okay. You know, it's kind of nice to kind of delve into these things well what was he writing down and what and and some early church fathers have had opinions about about what this might be we can't say with any certainty what it actually was but but we know that he does this and that that and we know because he does it it's good it's significant not, jesus does never do anything that's not significant uh but but it's kind of neat to see that he first writes then he's going to speak and then he's going to go back and write again um so we don't know exactly what's kind of going on here as far as uh, what he's writing. Uh, Weinrich does make a great note. I like Weinrich's uh, commentary because he kind of goes through all these kind of early manuscripts, early uh, church fathers on, on their interpretation of a lot of this. But he said that uh, some of the early manuscripts here and or after Jesus speaks, when he stoops down and writes again, say that uh, he was actually writing down the sins of each one of them, hmm. which I think is kind of point because then he's going to say, "Here's all the sins. Let you who have let the one who doesn't have sin cast the first stones." Um, it's kind of nice. It's fun to kind of see that. Right. <laughs> it's dramatic. It's got some flair. Um, but uh, other manuscripts understand Jesus' behavior as actually being more of a kind of a dismissiveness of his detractors mm. so that he's doing this actually kind of just to, to not even, not even give them what they want, not feed into their trap. Mm. And so he just kind of doesn't really pay any attention to them. So Ritterboss uh, is another commentary that I was looking at echoes this. He says, Jesus intended no more than to initiate a kind of delaying or cooling off process. Mm. I kind of find humorous language, but uh, he attracted attention away from the woman. He did something strange, unusual, in fact, kind of trivial, all while all around him anxiously awaited the answer, right? So this is like a really high tense moment. And what does Jesus do? He, he stoops down and he starts writing. Right. Uh, with the woman standing in their midst as a sinner caught in the act, he turned away from all the commotion, stooped down toward the ground, silently drawing letters or figures as if to keep himself occupied. However, one might interpret this writing on the ground. If, However, one might in, interpret this writing on the ground. It functions in any case in this dramatic situation as kind of an anti-climax right mm -hmm. it's not the answer i think that either the readers are, are expecting or that definitely not the scribes and the pharisees are expecting um and it kind of does disregard the urgency of the case that's being but then when jesus does speak at that point then it's very pointed to the words that he says right so okay i, I appreciate all that background on, on what he might have written as you said that's totally speculative it is it is intriguing too and you kind of like the 
the artistry of it, that if he was writing all of their sins on the ground. But again, that's speculation. But even just as a, an anticlimactic move, I think you can see that within the narrative. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the the writing which happens before and after what he says seems to be the point. And it, it's striking that within a text, as, as we've been saying, that we're not exactly sure where it's going to go. John, Luke, and its manuscript tradition is kind of you know, not, not very early. It's striking that in this text, you have some words from Jesus that I think are among the most well-known of Jesus. If you know, I mean, this idea of throwing the first stone has that sort of a nature of a cliche or an idiom that most people today, I think still understand, even if they maybe don't understand it in the way that Jesus used it. So let's, let's talk about Jesus words here in the ESV. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What's Jesus saying? So he, he directs us at the at the at the witnesses because actually according to the law those and this is Deuteronomy thirteen nine uh, uh, those who had kind of stepped forward in a trial and, and accused uh, this person as a witness they would also be the first one that would be casting stones so again I think it's Deuteronomy thirteen nine um, what's important is that the fact that I think to really kind of consider is you have the crowd. You have the woman. You have the woman obviously guilty, being caught in the act. But you also have the scribes and the Pharisees, the the religious zealots here, but they also could not be accused, or or they could also not be accused of as having no sin, right? So so who is the one in that group who has no sin? It's the Christ. Now that has to assume that you accept him to be the Messiah and the Christ. Um but that that's precisely what the Pharisees and the scribes refused to do. So Weinrich notes about this idea of without sin that modern commentators often claim that the term does not suggest total sinlessness, but is used generally of one being innocent or not guilty. But perhaps influenced by Paul, Christian usage often understands the word more absolutely, which I think is the right way to understand it. Absolutely is expressing the idea of sinlessness, you know, totally um, innocent. Uh, and perhaps the best solution is to interpret this word as meaning one who has not transgressed the law. And so the point being here is that Jesus is laying before them the idea that they're all guilty under the law of Moses. And, and Weinrich actually has a very interesting point to this, too. And this isn't, um, you know, just Weinrich. This, this is actually a pretty uh, common interpretation of this is the fact that this was a sin of adultery. Mm. And would involve even the sins of the the thoughts uh, and and uh, of the thoughts of the scribes and the Pharisees concerning this. Uh, so, like when Jesus talks about whoever thinks of or looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. This is one of those sins that really easily comes into the mind, into the uh, thoughts of the people, including uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. So, I think Jesus is really kind of sticking this adultery sin even with your own eyes your own thoughts your heart uh to the uh, to the scribes and pharisees and it works <laughs> that's the thing those words of jesus work because they don't stone her right mm. they 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 actually they don't there's no escalation of this nothing they leave mm. which is very fascinating that he says these words he again stoops down um and and then in that stooping down and writing, they leave. Hmm. 
So in, in terms of how Jesus avoids the trap, I think, again, it's we our Lord shows himself to be very masterful in doing this. And again, you can go through any of those accounts during Holy Week and see how the Lord does this again and again. And on the one hand, it's it's always, I think, fascinating to watch Jesus do this. And you, at least in, in my mind, my reaction is like, yeah, get them, Jesus. You know, you you show them. But I think if, if that's the only reaction we have, we miss at least part of what Jesus is up to, that he's actually teaching them something here. And I think what, what you said earlier about this being about Christology, I think is really helpful because it's, it means that the text isn't just Jesus is really good at avoiding traps, but he's actually at this moment trying to teach these scribes and Pharisees something about who he is. Okay, right. let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. They realize they can't throw the stone, but Jesus would invite them to see who he is as the one without sin right, and, exactly. and the one without sin for their sake. I mean, so yeah. that, that makes it more than just, hey, this is Jesus being really clever, but he's actually teaching too. Right. The one who is without sin who does not cast the first stone or the second stone or any of the stones, right? The one who is without sin is actually the one uh, who, well, we'll get to this, who takes the stones upon himself mm. and the punishment of the law upon himself. So, Right, right. Okay, so so Jesus, he, he speaks there in verse 7. He bends down and writes again, which we've, we've talked about, so that sort of just anticlimactic again. That's all he's going to say. He's writing something, who knows what. And then they hear it. They go away one by one, uh, beginning with the older ones. Is there any significance to the, the ordering, the way they leave with the older ones first? Yeah, so Weinrich notes that the older ones would have kind of been the example. All the younger ones would be following the older scribes and Pharisees. What were they going to do? Were they going to go ahead and start throwing the stones? Then they would probably continue to throw the stones. So they leave, Weinrich says, as an example. So it begins with the older ones, then the younger ones follow after that. So. Mm. Okay, I'm, I'm looking here a little bit more closely at your notes. The the writing of Jesus with his finger, that's a note that okay. we didn't really talk yeah. about. And I, I see you got a few things on that. you want to go visit that? Because that's pretty cool. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so um, this is actually from Ambrose, who talks about the significance of the finger, uh, which is mentioned in the first stooping down in writing. I don't think it's mentioned in the second one. Yeah, it doesn't look but like regardless, it. regardless, yeah, but, but this idea of the finger of God uh, in, in association with actually the writing of the law on Mount Sinai. Uh, And so Ambrose wrote um, that Jesus uh, wrote on the ground with his finger and recognized a parallel with the giving of the law of Sinai that Jesus, and this is Ambrose, quote, uh, wrote on the ground with the finger with which he had also written the law. And that comes from Exodus 31, 18. He gave uh, gave to Moses, God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Uh, and this idea of the finger of God is important. That's the, that's the finger of God is God's power, right? And his authority in the Old Testament, this idea that uh, the finger of God is the one that, that, that moves, that moves and, and, and does this. Um, uh, and so, which is neat, which is really neat for us to see, here is the same one who wrote the law on Mount Sinai, who is now being um, confronted with that law in the case of the sinful adulterous woman and who stoops down and writes something else. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so I think that, I think Ambrose is very good on this to kind of draw out that, that uh, connection between these. Uh, and then Weinrich also quotes um, Bruno of Segnini, Segn- 
who I've never actually heard of until I read this. He was an Italian uh, uh, Roman Catholic in uh, uh, the turn of the millennia, 1045 to 1123. But he says, when Jesus wrote with his finger on the ground, it was as though he said, you confront me with the testimonies of the law and recite to me the words of the law. You do not yet comprehend the law itself. Here is the finger which wrote the law. So I think, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right on. I mean, that that seems to be again that it's less about what he wrote, and we could speculate on that all day. But the mm-hmm. fact that he did write with his finger. So you you want to try to pit Moses against me? Jesus says, "Well, I'm actually the one that gave the law to Moses in the first place." Right. So it's it's not happening again. That testimony to who he is as the one sent by the Father, to use the the language that Jesus speaks in John so often, as the one who gave the law to Moses, now here he is writing on the ground, revealing himself, at least trying to reveal himself to these scribes and Pharisees who have come to attack him. As as you said, as, as John noted, they all leave one by one, the oldest first, setting the example, until the only two left on this scene are Jesus and the woman standing before him, And then Jesus is going to initiate a conversation with her. So help us into this closing part of the text. Right. I mean, I think it's significant. All those others who would accuse her are gone. And she's left before, again, the one whose finger wrote the law in the first place. Right. Uh, And Weinrich says it's as if uh, uh, it's as if the adulterous woman were standing on a new Sinai, hearing as once Moses had the voice Mm. of God. And what is God now going to say to her? And I think it's kind of kind of interesting that he's stooping down it's almost and i mean obviously he knows what's going on but he 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 comes up he he straightens up uh and he says woman where are they you know almost like he he's he doesn't really actually care about what is actually going on where are they has no one condemned you and she says no one lord and jesus says neither do i condemn you go and from now on sin no more now this word is interesting with this idea of condemnation very strong word which um paul's going to use mark uses it um well yeah i want to hit on two of these mark uses it and then paul uses it and it's used elsewhere for sure but this is the condemnation deserving of death Hmm. right and i think that's really significant that this deserves the death penalty because i think it definitely then relates and draws us to again this christology of the condemnation that Jesus would endure on the cross for this adulterous woman and even for you know, the sins of the whole world. So Mark 10, 33, um, when Jesus predicts his death, he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him, same word there, to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And then Mark fourteen sixty four, when this comes to pass, they say, you've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. And that's the same you know, Sanhedrin. The trial kind of takes place uh, very similar to this trial of this adulterous woman that's brought forward. But he is the one who pardons her. Neither do I condemn you, but who is going to be the one, which is why, again, this fits really nicely with Holy Week, who's he's going to be the one to actually be condemned and take those sins upon himself and be condemned to death, not and he is the sinless one, right? He's the one without sin, but he takes the sin upon himself to suffer for the adulterous woman and even for the scribes and the Pharisees for the sins of the whole world uh, uh, as the substitute. Mm. Even, and I, I look, if I'm looking at the Greek correctly here, it's not quite the exact same Greek word, although it looks like it's the same root word. It's a reminder, I think, of not just John 3.16, but John 3.17, 
that the father didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So again, within the context of John's gospel, we see Jesus enacting precisely who he is as he taught Nicodemus. He is the one who didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us, to give us eternal life. Uh, So, I mean, I think, yeah, it fits very nicely, and, and especially with that added context. And then pointing us forward to Holy Week, just as we've seen throughout John's gospel, that, you know, I mean, everything that Jesus is doing is leading toward that hour, that time, as he as he will speak of it. And and here again, we see that with this language of condemnation. But what about this, you know, go and, and sin no more part? What I mean, what is Jesus saying about, you know, the, I guess, the, the forgiveness and the, the life of repentance that follows? How does, how does all that work together? Right. I think it's what he says to any any of his disciples, any of, of Christ, uh, any Christian that he absolves, which is say, neither do I condemn you. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more, right? Uh, it's always the action of dying to sin and rising again at the absolution to, to live a new life, to walk in the newness of life. Not that we go on sinning that grace may abound, as Paul talks about, by no means. But we who die to sin uh, live to righteousness. That is, we walk in the light of Christ, uh, not in uh, continuing in uh, our transgressions or our sins. And that's really the, the work. Now, we're going to continue to sin. The adulterous woman would continue to sin, and we're going to still face the effects of sin throughout life. But the idea, the um, idea is a bad word. The, the, the place of a Christian is never to desire those sins, uh, but repentance is always... Uh, I'm sorry for these things. I want to do better. Receiving the absolution, rising to walk in the newness of life that God has given us. Uh, and that's precisely, again, what, what what Jesus is getting at here when he talks to this woman. She is forgiven. He, she, he, is not, he does not condemn her. Uh, he forgives her so that then she can walk in this newness of life to mm. go and sin no more to now because i mean she had sinned right i mean she was caught in this act and this is the christ who forgives those sins so that she can go forward and not uh and sin and sin no more uh mm. she can go forward and live now in according to the law of of moses in faith to god and in love to her neighbor right so i mean that would be an answer to those as you mentioned i think toward the beginning of our conversation Perhaps the reason some were, you know, willing to just kind of let this text go is because they thought maybe Jesus was making light of marital infidelity. It wasn't upholding marriage as it should. So we see that Jesus certainly upholds the sanctity of marriage and the importance of marriage and, and the importance of marital fidelity. The sixth commandment is very clearly applied here by Jesus. At at the same time, you know, I, I do think that this go and sin no more, a call away from the adultery that she had committed. And also, I think, a call to, to faith. You know, I, I recall the, the conversation we had on Sharper Iron when we were talking about John chapter 5, where Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. And, and he tells that man, you know, watch out so that nothing worse happens to you. And we talked about that's less, that's, that's really less about like, it's not that his sickness came about because of his sin, but Jesus is pointing toward, you know, the eternal consequence of sin and unbelief. Again, to, to think about that passage from, from John 3, you know, whoever believes, that's the one who is not condemned. Right. And so I, right. I think here with this, you know, go and sin no more, isn't only about 
the fruit of repentance, which you know John the Baptist preaches, Jesus preaches, but also a call to faith in in Christ, so that the word that he spoke to the Pharisees and scribes about who he is, now the same thing to this woman, you know, trust in the one who has no sin and didn't cast the stone, the one who yeah. will let himself receive that condemnation on your behalf. Trust in him. I think that's you know finally the call to this woman. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, that's exactly right. And she's there to hear it. Now we don't, we're not told what happens after that, right? right. Uh, with this woman, uh, is she then, you know, one of the faithful women who follows Jesus? But what she had been given is that absolution, and she had been taught and shown. She'd been given uh, uh, the absolution, shown who this Christ is. Uh, and I, I mean, I'd like to believe she went and and was uh, a. a faithful Christian, uh, in, uh, in the church. So pastor, we have about two and a half minutes left on the morning. Help us to wrap things up on this text from the gospel. According to John, give us the good news. Yeah. I think this is really important for us to kind of see again, that as in all the gospels, these things are written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And, uh, these stories are teaching us who this Christ is in, in relationship. I think, not only to the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, but in relationship to the law, the law of Moses, uh, who this Christ is in relationship to the law and how he teaches uh, who he is in the face of, of, of this situation where you have a clear in, uh, transgression of the law that deserves death. How then does Jesus respond? Um, and Weinrich notes this. He said, he who first wrote the law in Sinai, Sinai now writes the law in which the first pointed. It's the law of Christ's own judgment, that manner of work for which he came. It's the law of mercy and of the forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins, again, finds its place there, that he does not condemn her, that he had every right to as God himself, but that he had come uh, in mercy. Uh, he does not condemn her. And, and later on, he would actually be the one to be condemned, uh, as Paul talks about in Romans, um, when he says, uh, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The idea that the sin, the law does condemn us, sin does condemn us, uh, but Christ is the one then who takes that condemnation upon himself. Uh, and who intercedes for us, just as he really interceded for that woman. Uh, hmm. And I know we haven't really talked about it as him interceding for her, but he really is, I think. He's interceding for her with his teaching uh, and within his um, his absolution of her. Pastor Sam Wergau is pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana helping us today to study John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, it's always a good time. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.